Welcome to Emerge Everywhere. I'm Jennifer Tesher, journalist turned financial health champion. As founder and CEO of the Financial Health Network, I've spent my career breaking down silos by engaging with innovators across industries. And now I'm sharing those conversations with you. Meet the forward-thinking leaders challenging the status quo and unleashing creative new ways of improving financial health by seeing their customers, employees, and communities in 3D. My guest today is a master at seeing the complexities in the world and bringing unlikely bedfellows together to tackle them. After nearly two decades as a college president working to improve the lives of young people, Lisa Marsh Ryerson shifted her focus to the financial challenges of older Americans when she took the helm of the AARP Foundation in 2013. Lisa is a strong believer in the power and the necessity of collaboration in order to address complex challenges. And she has brought leading companies and organizations from across sectors together to take on food insecurity, aging in place, and supporting the financial health of older adults. Welcome, Lisa Marsh-Ryerson. Thanks so much for being here. Great to be with you. So you've been leading the AARP Foundation since 2013, but you actually started life in higher ed, uh, sort of at the other end of the age spectrum, if you will, as the president, I think, for 18 years of Wells College in upstate New York. So tell us what led you to higher ed and to Wells. Yeah, no, thanks, Jennifer. I'm thrilled to talk about that because you're right. I was president for almost uh, two decades, and then I was a dean, and and I'm a a teacher, uh, a literacy teacher by training. So education is in my DNA, and, and it is what I was pursuing for my career. And I loved my work in American higher education, and specifically at Wells College, because I what I know about myself is that serving important missions, you know, bold missions, uh, serving others is uh, what I wanted to do and have done with my life. So also what's interesting, Jen, is that I'm talking with you today back up in Aurora, New York, the home of Wells College, um, giving remote work. So it's great to be back here. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you actually graduated from Wells College. Is that true? I did, Jennifer, and I was the first alumna president. And a little bit of a fun fact my mother-in-law was the first woman president of Wells College. So that is likely an entirely different uh, podcast, but I'm proud to say that uh, Sissy Farenthold, my mother-in-law, is 93 and continues as um, really a human rights activist. Wow. That is is an incredible (laughs) story. I think there's a book there somewhere. There may be. There may be. You mentioned, though, that you were motivated by a career of service. Yes. Where does where does that come from? Yeah, you know, definitely in my upbringing in Jamestown, New York, and Western New York with my parents, who really, I'm a first-generation college student. It was important for our family that I and my five siblings had access to quality education. We had a great public education in our hometown, but we were raised in a family that believed service to others and to other organizations was critically, critically important, that giving back really helps us live the most fulfilled lives. So that's where it comes from. And then the motto of Wells College, where I went for my undergraduate education and served, is to have and to share. So at that, with that great liberal arts education, um, 
I was informed by how one uses the privilege of education to serve others and to improve the lives of individuals and communities. Got it. Wow. So I think I can see the through line between young adults to then older Americans. Certainly different generations, right? (laughs) There's certainly a service line that runs through that. But talk, talk a little bit about how you made the transition from working with college students and being in academia to now focusing on the challenges of older Americans as the president of the AARP Foundation. Yeah, you know, it's been on my mind a lot too, because it is uh, seven years ago that I moved to AARP and AARP Foundation and retired after my long career at Wells College. And I, I remember almost the moment. So if I take it back a bit, at Wells, though, primarily we were educating traditional age students. And for 136 years, Wells was a woman's college. As a feminist, that's important to me. Having a great life now as a co-educational residential liberal arts college um, as well. But we had a growing number of women, a program called Women in Lifelong Learning, women who were turning to college because, of course, they, they knew that in order to be financially resilient and to have the lives they intended to have, education would be important. And, of course, we know from research that education is such a critical factor in an individual's ability to thrive across the lifespan. So that, Jennifer, was certainly certainly a piece of it. But actually, I remember the moment, the moment before a convocation, when I was in my office and looking in a mirror and putting on my robes, right, garbing up, getting ready, where I would be giving another message that I had given for decades about the power of education to help students or learners greet lives of change and opportunity, that they needed to be flexible, that that their careers would need to change over time. And I truly remember looking in the mirror and thinking, uh, what about me? To be the best possible role model, uh, what about a next act for me to to continue to be a lifetime learner? Now, I want to also say that what compelled me, and you know her, so you get this, is that AARP is led by an incredibly bold and visionary CEO, Joanne Jenkins. So candidly, I wanted to serve a big mission, and ending senior poverty is a huge mission. But I met Joanne, and I thought, I want to work with this person and this team uh, where we're focused on innovation, getting the job done, uh, and being bold on behalf of a growing population. Yeah, well, I, you're right. Joanne is... Um and also an incredible leader like you are. And um, she definitely wants to make people follow and work with her. So you've mentioned older poverty and the work of the foundation is really focused on serving older adults struggling with poverty, but related issues of unemployment, food insecurity, uh, inadequate housing, and social isolation. These aren't new issues, but with COVID, we've realized just how pressing these issues are as older adults have really become the center of attention as among the most vulnerable uh, in this this pandemic. So as the head of a foundation that's focusing on this population, I can only imagine that these last six months or so have been incredibly stressful as you're navigating this crisis and navigating the foundation's response. Talk to us a little bit about Uh, what this time has meant for you? What have been the biggest challenges and struggles? um, And how is the foundation really leaning in in this moment? Yeah, it has been. 
um, a stressful time. But you know, working to end senior poverty is, is such an urgent factor that our work is always urgent. You know that we, we focus intently on driving for outcomes and that we're hyper-focused on financial resiliency, increasing economic opportunity and connection as a way to end senior poverty. But over the course of the pandemic, and then of course, Jennifer, with the other pandemics that have converged together. So the, the pandemic of structural racism and systemic inequities, the pandemic, the economic downturn um, in our nation as well, has heightened the need for the work of AARP Foundation. So what we're seeing is that, you know, a growing number of older adults, and we serve people who are 50 and older. So many, many segments within that population, AARP studies are confirming what we know in the economy. Well over 30% of people 50 and older have either lost their work because their workplace has closed or they have fallen into the state of underemployment where their hours have been reduced or their wages have been reduced. So the need for our services is ever more important. Some of the challenges are around digital divide issues. So I have to say, when you ask that question around stress, it's about how can we truly disrupt digitally so that we are able to continue to offer our direct service programs and our other tools and services to the growing population who need our work. So to put it in perspective, Jennifer, we, when we decided to suspend services for direct uh, programs, you might remember that at AARP Foundation, we run with the power of 36,000 volunteers. Wow. We were in the midst of AARP Foundation Tax Aid, which is a program where volunteers offer free tax preparation assistance for older adults. We were in operation in over 5,000 sites when we needed to suspend in-person services. So that tells you the scope of what we were dealing with, with just one of our programs. So we quickly needed to close in person and be sure that we could ramp up our digital services. That is, be sure that we were training enough volunteers to work effectively with phone assistance, work for tax preparation, or screen sharing opportunities. But, but this is a big challenge. As you can imagine on many levels, uh, certainly we've worked with your team in this space. It's a challenge of who has access to reliable internet services that are affordable. Do older adults have the actual tools in their hands that they need? And as it pertains to our work with your team, are those digital tools built in a way that educate users um, all the while that we're providing a digital service? So this was true both around our tax aid programs, but also our workforce programs. You really think in systems. You're thinking about all of the interconnections um, and needs in someone's lives, not just one need. Um, and, you know, this this podcast is really about uh, the role of leadership in creating an integrated financial health ecosystem and the importance of seeing people um, not as a two-dimensional stereotype, but as um, as someone living in 3D. And I and I think that you know, with older Americans in particular, we tend to fall back on stereotypes. So. I know you just mentioned that there have been issues in taking what was an in-person program 
and moving it to digital. Um, I suspect that a lot of people are making the assumption that, oh, old people don't use technology. We know that stigma exists, don't we? We do. It's an embedded uh, falsehood about older adults. Exactly. Or, you know, another another stereotype that we have is that uh, from the old days, if you will, if you work hard and then you retire at 65 and your financial future is all set. Um, but we know that that's also a myth. And I think it's the idea of busting these myths. Yes. Uh, that was in part of the, it was part of the impetus behind um, our partnership uh, between the Financial Health Network and the AARP Foundation uh, to uh, produce a video series on the lives of vulnerable older Americans and a report on how to better serve older adults with technology. So, uh, but you really uh, were the visionary behind this work. So talk a little bit about what you were hoping to accomplish with this work. Tell the listeners a little bit more about what we've produced, et cetera. Yes, happy to, because I think our collaboration together, our partnership um, is ever more important, given what we're going through uh, as a nation, collectively in society. Because, you know, as you said earlier in our conversation, we tend to have this theory that um, life just goes as planned, right? Everybody has the resources that they need. They have access to family sustaining wages in their job, access to work and save programs. They have, they own their home. They reach this age, the golden years, as the series says, and then they can ride into whatever their what next is and have all of their needs met. Now, we know that that has been a myth forever in society. We also know that we have this sense that, that poverty is a personal failing, that if you just, uh, it's something that someone's done wrong, that you just pick yourself up um, and, and try harder, you know, try it again harder. And, and what, what you and I know is that poverty is a societal illness. It really is a national failing, and it really is about systems. What became important to me in framing the work with you as the lead and Sarah and your entire team, Jennifer, was to be able to tell the stories, to go into individuals' homes, to share the realities of the complex challenges that older adults face. And the series, Financial Lives After 50, Rethinking the Golden Years, has done just that. And I'm going to urge everyone who's listening to us today to head to fintech.aarpfoundation.org and watch this series. It is... um, a set of conversations where individuals and families invited you into their homes and shared in gracious and generous ways what's happened to them. Lisa, I think we're gonna now play a clip of Corin and Larry's story. I retired about 62. That's why I could take early retirement, but I was, uh, Unemployed for about a year before that. It's been tight. Yeah, it's been real tight. This place was not built very well. So after 20 years, things are falling apart. And after 20 years, air conditioning heating needs to be replaced. Toilet needs to be replaced. And the heat here, you know, because it's so hot, our drapes need to be repaired. We, we can't do anything with the credit cards anymore because we haven't, we've, uh, weren't able to make the payments and, they were small enough in the beginning, but, we're, but now it's getting to be too large. 
can't manage them because everything's so expensive with cell phones and all that. These are stuff that we didn't anticipate when we were growing up, right? So these things are are expenses that are kind of out of our control after, after you retire. A car died on us, but we're waiting to get a new car, you know, this year, but without the money coming in, we can't do that. The six episodes each focus on a particular theme uh, or a challenge that older Americans are facing. Lisa, of all of the episodes, uh, which one is your favorite and why? It is so hard to choose one episode that would be my favorite. But I want to say our wrap-up episode where your team was asking all of our 11 participants to talk about advice that they wish, wish they had listened to. What would they be sharing as their advice? And the reason why that's my favorite, so I think everyone should listen and watch all six. But if you're choosing uh, because you don't have much time, go to the last episode and what you will walk away with is the deep understanding that knowing is not enough. So with, without exception, all of the participants shared that they knew they weren't saving enough, that they thought they should keep working longer than they worked, but that knowing was not enough. But again, what I want to say about that is not something they did wrong, right? That episode brings to the fore the inequities we have in society and the systemic challenges that we need to address around working and saving, around benefits and the portable benefits, around family sustaining wages, uh, to support caregivers, to just really develop solutions that address the complexities of people's lives. So I'm going to say episode six. Yeah, I agree. That was a very special episode. Let's turn our attention just for a moment to the other piece of work that we did together, which was really around designing for low and moderate income older adults, designing for their financial needs yes. and thinking about fintech over 50. Uh, we published a report that you can read at finhealthnetwork.org. Say a little bit more about uh, how that connects to the videos and why these two pieces of work together were so important uh, for the foundation. Yeah, you know, I begin again, Jennifer, by saying that these two pieces of work, it's as if um, coming together as leaders, you and I and our organizations knew that the work was important and timely, but my goodness, it is ever more timely when you take the combination of these research pieces because of the increased financial stress that we're seeing. And I should, I should mention, we conducted these interviews and did the videos before COVID. We did, before anyone knew the, the name COVID. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, so it was as if we had some foreshadowing, right? And you and I certainly did, and our teams did. What I mean by that is that based upon your research, AARP Foundation was able to confirm that there are there were pre-pandemic at least 13 million people 50 and older who were already financially vulnerable, 10 million living in poverty, and millions more, right? One, one event away from slipping into poverty. But so the, the combination is that you have provided for us and, and for other organizations and the public strong, strong data points. But with the data points, 
like the ultimate in data visualization. By that, I mean not just data graphics that are easy to consume, but really the stories of people's lives. It's the best of quantitative and qualitative research. And again, as an educator and someone who worked in the academy for most of my career, you have to have both. You need quantitative and qualitative research to, to get it right. What's important to me about FinTech after 50, over 50, is that increasingly financial solutions will be based upon the best design in financial technologies. So managing stretching from paycheck to paycheck, developing and managing savings, all of those will become ever more dependent upon older adults' ability to access really high quality financial technology tools. And the report defined for us at AERP Foundation that, again, let's fight the stigma. Older adults are not at all reticent to use financial technologies, but they're over, they are like long past over the stigma that society places upon them as incompetent when it comes to using technology or digital tools. Um, we heard that, right? You heard that, your team in the research. So you've provided a roadmap that we are already using at AERP Foundation to develop financial services tools, financial technology that meets older adults where they are, that builds education into the tool, that builds safety into the tools, and that helps older adults who are moderate to low income have tools that meet the immediate need they have. If, if savings is where you need help, those are the tools that you need. I'm pretty sure that you all have developed your own savings tool uh, recently, am I right? You are right. We, we were able to launch in 2019, actually two saving tools uh, that, that really underscore the need for financial resiliency. One is my savings jar, which is a coaching. So it uses the research, really looking at um, coaching and behavioral changes. And also my savings jar connects the users to an online community so that they are able to share. The community boards are almost such a significant part of my savings jar where individuals are talking with one another about their challenges and how they're using the tool to meet their challenges. And we also have used this tool to partner with community-based organizations or CBOs nationwide as well. And then the other is self-saver, which recognizes that the fasting growing group of entrepreneurs are those over 50, and also recognizes that for moderate to low-income older adults who have lost their job or are underemployed, gig economy opportunities might be their only opportunity to continue to earn income. And Self-Saver helps them learn through using this digital tool how to save, sidecar, and pay for their income taxes. For many older adults, it's the first time they're a 1099 employee, for example. That's a that's a need that frankly all gig workers have, all ages, right? All ages. But that's that's really interesting. So one thing that I've learned uh, about you from our collaboration um, is how much of a collaborator you are. You really believe in partnerships as a way to solve complex problems. I do. And the fact is, you know, you run a a foundation and are part of a a much larger organization that 
are big enough to do the work on your own. And listen, we all know that partnerships are harder and slower than going it alone. So talk to us about why collaboration is so important to you. Why do you think it's so um, necessary given the challenges you're trying to work on? I'm so happy that in our collaboration and partnership together, you recognize how important collaboration and strategic partnership development is for me. But you, you, you hit on it. That's important for AARP overall. And um, if it's all right, Jennifer, I want to go back to the very founding of AARP and, and remind everyone it's in my DNA, but it's in the DNA of this great organization that I am you know, honored to serve, AARP and AARP Foundation. So little known story. Ethel Dr. Ethel Percy Andrus, the founder of AARP, uh, was out looking for retired educators. She was an educator herself. And she found a retired educator. And what's important is that we pause and remember, this is a retired educator who served students and community for her entire career. And where did Ethel find her? Living in an abandoned chicken coop. And at that moment, Dr. Ethel Percy Andrus made the decision that she would continue her work to fight injustice and to develop a marketplace that could help older adults um, thrive as they age. And to that is still the purpose of AARP. You know, we want to have individuals be able to choose how they live as they age. But that entrepreneurial DNA. And that uh, drive to fight injustice remains important across all of AARP. So just as important at AARP Foundation. Could we do it on our own? Uh, we're large. AARP, as you know, has nearly 38 million members. We um, are working hard on financial resiliency, uh, health security, financial security, and personal fulfillment. But the point is, the way that one develops what I would call sustainable sticky solutions is to recognize that individuals live whole lives in communities and that we need to tap into the will and the expertise of multiple sectors and organizations to be sure that we are developing solutions that actually get legs and are sustainable and are ongoing. You might remember. That, that I am the CEO of ProMedica, which is a really uh, multifaceted, not-for-profit healthcare organization that is uh, in many, many states, but based in Toledo, Ohio, that Randy Oster and I found ourselves showing up at the same hunger summits because we both knew that hunger was just a fundamental social determinant of health that was driving negative health outcomes for older adults. And we looked at each other and said, wouldn't it be great, a large nonprofit, a nonprofit healthcare organization, if we came together to fight social determinants of health? And so we created the Root Cause Coalition, which is about bringing healthcare, uh, academics, public organizations, philanthropy together. And the why is because I know, Randy knows, our organizations know, AARP knows, you know, that. Is it harder to be in strategic partnership? Sure it is. But will the outcomes be better and, and more sustainable? For sure. You know, when you're talking about the social determinants of health um, and this idea that healthcare alone is not actually enough to make people healthy, it's about all of the other factors in their lives, um, you almost can't 
approach that work without thinking about partnerships and collaborations. Um, and it's it's interesting to think about how this root cause uh, foundation brought together really healthcare organizations primarily, but on the issue of hunger. Hunger was what brought you. That's what drove us originally. Right. Yeah. Which is, which is just, uh, you know, you don't necessarily think about that's the kind of thing that healthcare systems and insurers are necessarily thinking about every day. Yeah, no, you're right. And it was, I really credit Randy and his team at ProMedica for joining with us and then all of the other healthcare organizations that have joined. But it was based upon their experience that many, many people of all ages were coming in. They they definitely had were experiencing negative health outcomes. And then they were finding that food is medicine and that it becomes very important when we're screening patients that we think about other social determinant issues, that so much of healthcare is outside of, right, whatever that formal setting is. And it's how do we develop those very effective closed loop systems where you're having more than warm handoffs to other organizations, where you're actually um, able to have patients be connected or or anyone connected, any client or consumer connected with organizations who can help them, where you then are getting a closed feedback loop of what those outcomes are. But it does require that we break down silos. And that's the hard part, isn't it, of strategic partnerships. And that's the call or promise of a collective impact model. And we all say, you know, we're not going to work in silos, that we're going to bust those. But then we're, we're almost wired organizationally or in society right. to, to drive back into our silos. So it has required a leap into um, and a commitment to trusting other organizations and, and doing our work in new ways, both sharing the work, sharing the goals, um, and sharing the successes. What's interesting uh, to think about is what you said about a closed loop, not just a warm handoff. I think a, a lot of companies and organizations have today and can can understand the importance or value of collaboration or partnerships. But it's a very different thing to say, this isn't just some nice partnership we put on a press release. Oh, look at that. You know, That's we're right. going to refer each other's services. This is actually, you know, these kinds of interventions, if you will, really have to be built into the system and to the way in which companies and organizations operate. That's a, that's a much bigger ask. How open do you think um, or do you find companies and organizations are to really that level of, um, of, of action? Yeah, I found that largely open now, whether or not you can make it to the finish line is another story, as you're, as you're indicating, Jennifer. So I think the openness is there because the scale of the problems have increased so exponentially in society and in communities, and that you have, whether it's healthcare organization or, or nonprofit charities, public charities like AARP Foundation, there is such a focus now on um, overcoming poverty that there is definitely more openness. But you hit on the key because it's about changing your practices, your standard operating yes. processes as well, and figuring out ways that we can use uh, effective tools to be sharing information up to our standards of privacy, 
but sharing that information effectively to um, increase community health. Given COVID and, um, and the public health crisis around social isolation and loneliness and around uh, structural racism and systemic inequities, I believe there'll be more drive to come together and solve. It's just we've um, hard to find any bright spots in what we're what we're going through right now with the convergence of so many pandemics. But one may be that more and more individuals and more and more organizations feel vulnerable right now. And what we're knowing collectively is that actually returning back to whatever was normal is not sufficient that we were not meeting the needs. In my space, it's meeting the needs of moderate to low income of vulnerable older adults. But collectively in community, we have this broader sense that people are in trouble and that it doesn't serve us well from a public health standpoint or a collective health standpoint to return to systems and ways of being and doing that actually aren't making a difference and aren't providing more equitable opportunity. Lisa, I think that's a fantastic way to end our conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Emerge Everywhere. Happy to be here. This has been Emerge Everywhere, a Financial Health Network production. I'm Jennifer Tesher, and I'd love to hear your ideas for future guests and your reactions to the show. You can connect with me on Twitter at Jen Tesher. If you liked this episode, please review the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the work and research we do, please visit emerge.finhealthnetwork.org. See you next time.